0: well good morning welcome to all those who are joining us on site and online this morning as well yes we are really looking forward to our Cook-off, our kickoff cookoff that's coming up in just a couple weeks, and so we encourage everyone not just to come, but everyone to bring something to share as sort of a potluck. But then, maybe you think what you're bringing is of good enough quality to enter a competition, and there's a sort of that additional level that we're adding on to it. So please consider bringing your savory pies and your sweet pies, and we'll all enjoy a wonderful kickoff Sunday together, coming up here in September. Well, if you've been with us throughout the summer, you know that we're working our way through the Ten Words to Live By, a sermon series based upon the Ten Commandments. And for the last few weeks, we've actually been talking about some pretty big ones. Some pretty big ones that really, you know, thankfully only a few people tend to break. And and these are, you know, big ones in terms of the significance of how they impact community, but also in terms of how the Bible treats them because they're actually considered capital offenses, meaning like you would... You lose your life for breaking these ones. Things like like murder, uh, adultery, uh, even, kids can pay attention to this one, capital offense of disobeying your parents. (laughs) It's in the list there as well. Well, today we're going to look at something a bit different. We're not going to look at a word to live by that is a capital offense, but we are going to look at one that I'm pretty confident all people have broken. The eighth word to live by, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, that says, You shall not steal. Now, I'm so confident that everybody, to some degree, in some fashion, at some time, is guilty of breaking this one. I just went around the office and asked the staff what, what sort of things that they have stolen. And it actually, I didn't have to even pull it out of them. They just offered it up. It was like at the forefront of their mind. Like, I went and I talked to Zach first, and he confessed very quickly that he stole money from a change drawer in the kitchen. So, Heather and Randy, if you're wondering where that $1.87 went, like, Fifteen years ago, <laughs> Zach has now confessed to that. I went to Pastor Andrew who told me about a digital watch that he saw. And he just, he had to have this digital watch. And so he, he kind of snuck it into the shopping cart, but then his mom found it. And she's like, I'll put that back. And so he pretended to put it back, snuck it out of the store, but then his mom found it again, made him return it, made him go back and apologize, and that was what he did last Wednesday was he went back and had to apologize the store for the digital watch that he stole. I went to Pastor Athena and asked her about it, and she adamantly says that she has never stolen anything. I think she just broke the ninth command, which will be next week about line. But she was also very quick to throw her brother under the bus and talk about a wagon full of chocolate bars that he stole when he was, he was young. Now, that's that myself, I'm not innocent either. Uh, I'm Unfortunately, I have to admit that when I was 13, I did get picked up for shoplifting some pens from the bay. I know if you're going to get caught shoplifting, choose something better than pens. If you're going to do that, I get it. But I also married a thief because about 28 years ago, Nadine stole my heart. That's, I know, I know. Isn't that cheesy? Isn't it? (laughs) So... But, but anyways, actually Nadine has stolen things as well. There's one time we were shopping. <laughs> she didn't know I was gonna tell you about this. We were shopping and we were buying winter boots for Kaylina, and Kaylina had decided to lay down in the bottom of the cart and have a nap. And so we put the boots on the bottom of the cart. And then we walked out of the store, forgetting the boots were on the bottom of the cart, technically stealing the boots also from the bay. I'm surprised the bay allows us even to. <laughs> To walk in there, there's like a mugshot of Mark and Nadine at the bay, (laughs) not allowed to go there. But anyway, I think the truth of it is, all of us have stolen something, probably something big. You know, we're not talking here about Grand Theft Auto or being like jewel thieves, but sometimes small things that we overlook. Sometimes we were little, we stole a cookie. Sometimes we, we downloaded a song off the internet. We, we watched a video that was sort of pirated. Oh, it's a free video online. Let's watch that. That's cheaper than going to the theaters. Uh, whatever it may be, all of these things kind of boil down to the power of this lure from the idea of gaining something for nothing. There's this powerful lure of gaining something for nothing. And so when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we find that, that God has now gathered the nation of Israel, his people. He's gathered them at the foot of Mount Sinai, and, and, he's, and he's, they're on the fresh out of this time of slavery, with limited possessions. But they're about to enter into this time of living in the promises and the future blessings and abundance of God. And so he feels inclined at this time to include this eighth word, to live by, as he talks about the nation, how they are to live together in relationship with each other, relationship with him, for that day and the days going forward. And he says, you shall not steal. It's not something to be part of your life, part of your community, part of your relationships. You shall not steal. And it's not just because he wants people to to, uh, kind of preemptively ask them to honor the property of others. It goes deeper than that. Because see, even if they don't fully understand it quite yet, God knows this. God knows that their behavior towards the property of others will actually reveal the truth about their relationship to others and even their relationship to him. The way that they treat property, the behavior towards property, towards possessions, will actually reveal the truth of their relationship towards their neighbor and the relationship they have with God. You know, and they wouldn't be the least bit surprised if those who were gathered at the foot of the mountain that day that heard this word, this simple command, these four words come down from the voice of God, that some of them actually would be reminded of a story from their own history, a very prominent story from their own history that actually proves this point, that the way that we treat property of another person actually reveals the nature of our relationships. And it's a story we find recorded for us in the book of Genesis, from the history of the nation of Israel. And, and it's Genesis chapter twenty-five through chapter twenty-seven. If you if you want to kind of read along, or if you want to read it later, uh, you can find it page nineteen of a pew Bible. You know, if you don't have a Bible, the Bibles in front of you are the one thing you are allowed to steal. You're welcome to steal a Bible from us. We have more. We'll put them back. It's fine. Page 19, you find in Genesis chapter 25. We're not going to read all three chapters today, but we'll go through it here, and you can maybe read it on your own afterwards if you wish. But this is the story of Abraham's, Abraham's son Isaac, who marries a woman by the name of Rebekah. And Rebekah is pregnant with twins, and the oldest son is named Esau, and, and the younger is Jacob. Now, right from birth, these boys are very different from each other, and there's incredible tension that exists between them. Tension within the relationship. And we see an example of this in in Genesis chapter 25, where we reach a point where where they're they're older now, and Esau comes in. He's a man of the field. He's He's a hunter, and he's been out all day, tired and famished. And he comes in from the day, and he sees that Jacob, who's more of a homebody, has been cooking some stew. And so Esau demands that Jacob give him some stew. Now Jacob is kind of cold and calculating in his nature and in his character, and he decides that he's going to take advantage of this situation. And we, and this is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, and it says this: Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished, and he looked at Jacob and said, "Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished." Jacob replied in verse 31, First, sell me your birthright, he says. Look, I'm about to die, Esau says. But what good is my birthright to me if I'm dead? But Jacob said, Swear it to me first. And by swearing it, this was legally binding at this point. Swear it to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank and got up and left. And he despised his birthright. That must have been some pretty incredible stew. Because a birthright was not a small thing. You see, a birthright is a way of referring to what the eldest son was entitled to in his father's inheritance. A double portion of his father's inheritance. A double portion. They have to kind of rule and have control over the home when the father passes on. Sold for an incredible bowl of stew. Now, maybe Esau first thought that Jacob was kidding. Like, what a ridiculous request to make. Maybe he thought he was joking, but regardless, he recklessly, and probably with little concern for the value of his birthright, agrees to this. And Jacob is completely serious. Completely serious and takes advantage of the situation and gains something for virtually nothing. You see, he valued the property over the relationship. And this caused a rift that had existed for years past and continued to grow for years going forward. And we see this because we pick up the story in chapter 27 when Isaac, their father, is now near death. And so he calls in his eldest son, Esau, to come and receive a blessing. He says, before I bless you, I want you to go into the field and, 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 and go hunting. And, and whatever you find, whatever you can kill, cook a, a meal for me and then come together. We'll have this meal I'll let us time together and then I'll give you the blessing. Well, Rebecca overhears that this is what's about to happen. And so she goes to Jacob and plots with Jacob to go fool Isaac and steal the blessing. So she has a goat slaughtered, and Rebecca prepares this meal. And then Jacob goes and puts on Esau's clothes. And and, and he must have been his, you know, Esau must have been a, a sasquatch of a man, because he had to put like, like goat skin on his arms, so his arms were hairy like his brother. And so Jacob has on, has on his brother's clothes and this hair in his arms, and he takes in this meal to his father Isaac. And he claims to be his older brother. He gives it to him, but Isaac is suspicious. He says, My son, the, the voice is wrong, but the food and the And the smell of the clothes and the feel of your hands. Are you really my son, Esau? And Jacob just bold-faced lies to his father and says, yes, I am your son, Esau. And then Jacob proceeds to bless him, promising him incredible abundance on top of the birthright that he already has, and makes him lord over all. Shortly thereafter, Esau comes in and says, dad, dinner's ready. Let's sit and talk and eat and, and share this time together before you bless me. And, and, and Isaac, who's near death, now has, has a heart attack as the shock and confusion descends upon him, the truth descends upon him as to what has actually just taken place. And, and he says, who are you? He says, I, I'm Esau, your son. Bless me. And he says, I've already given the blessing. It's, it's been deceitfully taken, but it is now possessed by another. And then we see in verse in chapter 27 verse 36, Esau exclaims, no wonder his name is Jacob, for he has cheated me twice now. First he took my rights to being the firstborn, and now he has stolen my blessing. And the anger burns within him, and he plots to go kill his brother Jacob when the time of mourning for the father is over, because he wants justice. He wants to pay back Jacob for the wrong that was done to him, but also if he kills him, he can now reclaim what is rightfully his in the first place. So Jacob, knowing that this is the plot, flees to a land of Haran where he lives for many, many years in fear of his brother. You see, Jacob's name was synonymous with, with deceit and thievering and, and being a usurper because and, and he was plotting in, to steal from his brother. Now, just like us, as the nation of Israel receives this eighth word to live by, you shall not steal, we can see why in this story a little bit. We can see why behavior towards property of others reveals the truth about a relationship with that person and with God. You see, Jacob thought that he was smarter than both his father and his brother, And he wanted what they possessed more than he wanted relationship with them, to the point where he was willing to cheat and to steal for personal gain. And because he was willing to do that, it led to this relational division. It led to suspicion within the relationship and this desire for retribution because somebody felt like they were being wronged. And here's the thing, even outside of the story, even outside of the nation of Israel, every civilized nation that has ever been recorded has rules about stealing because they know the damage that it does to the community. They know the damage it does to relationships. Every civilized nation has had rules about theft, about stealing, and sometimes to very serious penalties and consequences in order to deter people from doing so. You can read stories and read history books about some nations where if you were caught as a repeated thief, they would maybe physically beat you. They would perhaps cut off your hand so you couldn't steal anymore. Sometimes they would even sentence you to death. By the way, who was Jesus crucified beside? Thieves. Beside thieves. You see, God wants Israel to be a civilized nation. He wants them to honor the property of others, but also to honor others. Because stealing helps the individual at the expense of the community. And we're not just talking about the expense of material costs here. It also is at the cost of having this contempt towards other people within the community. You see, because if you're willing to steal from somebody, I'm willing to bet that if you're willing to steal from them, you're probably not too eager to pray for them. You're probably not too eager to help them to seek their good because your actions are actually going against those very things. So there's this contempt that builds up within community. And rather than than, than building walls to protect the individual, rather than than creating suspicion within relationships and community, rather than, than having those sorts of things, God wants people to lean towards trust instead of the suspicion, the trust. But stealing is one of the ways that that can be broken down. You see, Jacob's actions reveal the truth about his relationship with his brother and his father, They reveal the truth of that, that he valued property more than relationship with them. But here's the other thing in this story, is they actually also reveal the truth about his relationship with God as well. It's because they reveal that he lacked trust in God's promises, and in God's ability to follow through on the promises that God had made. It's ironic if you think about it, because he went through all of this scheming, through all of this stealing, through all this fear, and running, and chasing, and and having a bad reputation and bad name. He went through all of that to gain something that was already promised to him. You see, before he was born, when Rebecca was still pregnant with both of these boys in her womb, she sought the Lord, and the Lord gave her a prophecy. that said this in Genesis 25, verse 23. It says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. They'll They'll be rivals. And one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Before they were even born, God had already prophesied that Jacob would be the one the covenant would carry through with. That Esau would serve Jacob. It was already prophesied before they were born. But for some reason, both Jacob and Rebekah, who would be familiar with this promise, for whatever reason, didn't believe it. And they felt the need to take matters into their own hands. To make it a reality by their own efforts, by their own grasping to make it a reality. And it's, it's so ironic because it's, it's like embezzling money from a parent's company that you already know the will says you're going to inherit. It's like stealing Christmas gifts from under the tree, but only the ones with your name on them. It's foolish. It's foolish just to do such. And see, and it's evidence that the person lacks trust in the promise. And they lack trust in the giver's ability to follow through on the promise. And God had promised to care for and to guide and to prosper the nation of Israel. For generations to come, not just those who were gathered there, but for their children and their children's children. For generations to come, he had promised to care for them and guide them and prosper them. And so, yes, he wants them to be a civilized nation. But he also wants them to be a faithful nation. A nation that honors and trusts each other, but also honors and trusts God. Because if they trust him, they'll live by the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Rather than the experience of Jacob, which is my kingdom come, my will be done. And so as Israel hears this this eighth word to live by, You shall not steal. I think many would be reminded of this story. Can you you see why? They're reminded of the story from their own own history. Very prominent story of of their history. And how their behavior towards the property of others reveals the truth about their relationship with others and their relationship with God. But what about us? How how do we apply this? How, How do we apply this? What does it reveal about our relationship with others? And with God, you see, a, a few moments ago at the, at the start here, I, I, I kind of made you know, light a little bit of, of you know good people who who steal things. Like, again, we're not talking about kleptomaniacs here, but, uh, but good people who who steal things sometimes, and quite often it's innocent and, and unintentional. But I hope I, I think you'd agree with me that it's true that this is something that everybody, to some degree, at some point, at some place, is broken. And if we take the time, I know we could prove it. We're not, not going to do a show of hands necessarily, but I know I could prove it. Because I imagine if all the ladies here, if you dug into your purse, you're probably going to find a pen at the bottom with some random company name on it. And you're like, where did that pen come from? And you might even pull out a West Meadows pen. Right? Because we're running low. <laughs> and they're nice pens. right? We're not too upset about it. Just saying. You might find a West Meadows pen in your purse. Dads, what dad has not stolen Halloween candy? We call it the dad tax, right? I have to make sure it's safe, right? Make sure there's nothing, nothing harmful in there. At work, now I'm not talking about embezzling money from work I, you know, you know, or committing fraud at work, but at but work. Has anyone stolen a Post-it note? <laughs> Post-it notes, highlighters, staples, printer paper. There's a popular one. You know, they, how about a calling in sick because oh, it's plus 30 and I don't feel good, right? <laughs> Things like that. Uh, research has shown 75% of employees admit that they have stolen from work. The other 25 are breaking the ninth command, which we'll talk about next week, right? Uh, another common in society is hotels. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, this one surprised me a little bit, but not completely. Hotels, one of the biggest issues in hotels is people stealing towels, stealing robes, people even stealing sheets. And toilet paper, I know a couple of years ago toilet paper was in high demand, but stealing toilet paper from hotels. People would steal the lamps if they weren't bolted down, which is why they're bolted down, so they don't get stolen. And I actually have to confess that I have stolen something from a hotel. But I'm very selective on what it is and which hotel it is. You see, Nadine and I, when we, when we go to certain places, we tend to we go to Banff or to Lake Louise, we like to stay in the Fairmont. And the Fairmont has the, the Rose 31 shampoo, conditioner, and lotion that Nadine loves. And I thought, well, I'll go, because you can buy it. So I thought, well, will go online and buy it. It's $93 a bottle to buy this. And so knowing this, and knowing I wanted to gift my wife with this shampoo, conditioner, and lotion she loves, we were leaving the hotel one day, and there was a housekeeping lady who left her cart unattended. And so... Yeah, you know, nervous chuckle. Yeah. yeah, I pilfered it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't take all of it. But yeah, we stocked up on the way out. <laughs> and we were good for a little while. I, I confess. I confess that we've done that. But, but here's the thing. People freely steal from like hotels and sometimes fr- from companies. But they would never dream of doing the same thing if you were spending the night at a friend's house or, or at your mom's house, would you? Like, like, when you get up to leave your friend's house the next morning, do you take the sheets with you? <laughs> do, you do you steal their towels? Like, Mom's got some good shampoo. I'm going to take Mom's shampoo before I leave. It just leads to these awkward phone calls. Like, like it was great to have you guys with us last night, but, but do you know where the sheets went? <laughs> or, I, I went to get a shower this morning, and I swear I put a new bottle of Head & Shoulders in there. But well, it's gone. Like, people don't do it when we stay at a friend's house, but we'll do it when we stay at a hotel. Why is that? Why are people willing to steal from a hotel, but they won't steal from mom's house? Well, research has actually shown the reason that this happens. You see, number one, if they feel if a person feels that there is a low chance of getting caught, or if they do get caught, there's just this minimal consequence that goes with it. Like people think, like, do hotels really track all the towels? Do they really keep inventory on every single little, like, little bottle of shampoo that's in there? And even if they do, are they going to pin it on me? But, but mom knows that I was there yesterday. <laughs> mom knows there was a set of sheets on the bed when they got there, and there's not a set of sheets on the bed when they left. She knows that they're gone, and she knows you took them. But the second factor is if the person lacks a sense of connection to the individual or to the organization, this makes them more likely to commit or to break this eighth word to live by. Because they think, you know, businesses and corporations, they're they're impersonal entities. Companies don't have feelings. So there's no harm. But mom feels betrayed. Mom feels disappointed that her son steals shampoo, that her son is the shampoo bandit of the Fairmont. I'm sorry, mom, that I did that. They, They feel this betrayal and disappointment that it happens. So we can see how this activity relates to our relationship with others, but what about how it relates to our relationship with God? Well, here's the question. If we're willing to steal from a disembodied, impersonal hotel, some people feel it's perfectly fine to break God's rules because he's an invisible God. He's an invisible God. It's easy to tell ourselves, I don't see him, so he doesn't see me. And if he doesn't see me, then he doesn't know. If he doesn't know, he doesn't care, and then it doesn't matter. Kind of like Jacob. Who says my father's eyes are old and tired? My father doesn't see so well anymore. I bet you I could fool him. This is the way that Jacob thought, and sometimes there's a bit of that that happens in people today. You know, God's—I can't see him, so he can't see me. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. Doesn't care. It doesn't matter. But God sees very, very well. God sees very well, and He knows, and He does care. He cares enough about our relationship with others and our relationship with him to include the eighth word to live by in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. But do we really need to apply that to ourselves on even these little lesser sins? Post-it notes and shampoo, really? Well, this is where people start to get a little bit divided on the fact, actually. Because all agree that, yeah, don't steal diamonds and don't steal cars. But what about the small, the the lower value stuff? It didn't really cost that much, so, so it doesn't really matter. But here's the answer to that question. God's prime concern is not the value of the item. God's primary concern is the value of the person, the value the person holds. And if you hold the eighth word to live by as a personal value given to us by the word of God, it doesn't matter if it's big or small. It's a personal value by which we live. Does that make sense? And the Bible reveals that God does see. And that God does care. And he does see and he does care about the little things. And even the words of Jesus, we can find this. In in Luke chapter 16, verses, verses 10 through 12, Jesus says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches and if you have not been uh, with true riches and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property well who will give you property of your own this passage comes from a part of scripture where where god is talking about maximizing what god has given us for heavenly purposes and the worldly wealth he's talking about here is not using the word worldly in the sense of like evil bad things it's talking about temporal things, things of, of temporal value that God has placed into our hands for us to be given to go be good stewards of. And the principle underlying this, the whole context of this passage is that the principle is, is that God is the owner of it all, but He places into our hands things to be used. And what He placed into our hands is not a privilege, it's a responsibility. It's not a privilege, it's a responsibility. And if we want to be found faithful with much one day, which is the ambition and the the goal of many, many people, if we want to be found faithful with much, it's not going to happen by grasping on our own basis, grasping after with our own hands. It begins by being faithful with what God has placed in our hands. And if we're faithful with what he has placed in our hands, not what we've grasped for ourselves, but faithful with what he has placed in our hands, he will place more. And not only will he place more, but he will also place more opportunities. Opportunities to receive and opportunities to attain true riches. True riches being those things that have an eternal value in his kingdom. You see, if God owns it all, but we lack contentment with the blessings he's placed in our hands, we're going to start grasping. We'll start grasping for more. We'll start grasping for what others have. We're going to start taking from others, from a lack of contentment with what he has placed in our hands. And it begins with a view of what he has placed in our hands. And so this does reveal the truth of our relationship with others and our relationship with God. But see, God calls his people not just to abide by this commandment to the point where they are non-thieves... So, that's one of the things we looked at with each of these commands. There's this deeper aspect. You may have, if you're with us, you've been noticing this that there's, there's one level you can abide by by simply just being a non thief, a non adulterer, a non murderer. And to some degree, that's fine. But what we're really speaking about there is just, it's just a lack of activity. Just, I just won't do anything wrong and I'll be okay. But, but there's a deeper fulfillment of this. See, see, God is not just calling his people to be non thieves, the absence of activity. There's also this inherent call, especially we see this through the New Testament, this inherent call to to be something. It's not just about what you do and don't do, but it's about being, about who you are. And he's calling them not just to be non-thieves, but to be givers. Givers that are intentionally acting in the act of giving, of, of using what God has placed in their hands for kingdom purposes. And when it comes to property, there are two ways that people can choose to live. We can choose to live as takers, or we can choose to live as givers. And a taker would be defined as this. If, if a person sees themselves as a terminal, meaning I see myself as an endpoint of the story when it comes to poss- possessions, I'm going to labor, I'm going to scrape, I'm going to take in order to acquire and experience as much as possible and bring it into my own Kingdom, my own world. I'm going to be the terminal, the end point of the story. And this is where we get that that secular kind of adage, the the idea of of he who dies with the most toys wins. Probably heard that before. That's that mentality. I'm the end terminal. I'm the end of the story for possessions. I'm going to labor and scrape and take to build up as many toys as I can. The taker mentality. But there's the giver mentality as well, which is completely contrary to this, that says, I see myself as a transition point. I'm not a terminal. I'm a transition point that God has given to me. God has given me opportunities, experiences, abilities, possessions. And I look at those not just with a degree of contentment, but with a mindset of how can I use this for the advantage of others. Not taking from others, for the advantage of others. And this is what it looks like to be a steward, to be a steward, a manager of what God has placed in our hands. A steward understands it is not theirs in the first place. And instead, with this mentality, they look at what God has placed in their hands and they use it. They're they're encouraged to use it to serve others, to, to donate, to tithe, to volunteer. And they do so with great joy and incredible acts of generosity. See, In the New Testament, Jesus talks about this as well. He kind of echoes this with a call to embrace moving from this taker to giver transformation. And again, in the book of Luke, this time in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, your father in heaven has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's given you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out and treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where the thief cannot come in and steal it. Where the thief can't come in and steal it. Where the moth cannot destroy it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, as your heavenly father, great pleasure to give to you in abundance, including the kingdom of heaven. And to all who stop living like Jacob, who says, My kingdom come, my will be done. And start praying, Your kingdom come, your will be done. In me through me, and through all the earth. You see, the eighth word, to live by, on one level reminds us to be non-thieves. But it also calls us to a deeper transformation from from a taker to a giver life. And those who live that out, in the relationship with others, in the relationship with God, are are people who tend to see a few things. Number one, they tend to see that they believe in a God who is relational. And because they believe in a God who is relational, they believe in a God who sees, who knows, and who cares. He sees, he knows, and he cares. Not just about what you do, but about who you are. About you. He cares about you. He loves you. And when we can understand that, we can then begin to see that what he blesses us with is is not a privilege, but a responsibility. And truly is that. It truly is a blessing. And we can then see ourselves as stewards of those things, stewards of God's resources, of the time, the the treasures and the talents he's given us. And we can joyfully use what God has placed in our hands, and we can use it to worship him, and we can use it to serve others. See, Jacob was a taker. He didn't trust God. He didn't trust God. He thought, God can't see, God can't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't know, God doesn't care. I will act by my own means, and I will take that's the story of Jacob, for the first half of Jacob's story anyways. But in contrast to that, I'm reminded of a more contemporary story, a uh, story of a young missionary man by the name of Jim Elliott, who was called to the Okuz tribe in Ecuador. Now, ever since Jim was a young boy living in Oregon, whenever you'd hear stories from missionaries or, 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 or of anything at a time of a person who died without knowing Jesus, it brought this incredible sadness into his life. And so he always felt called from a very young age to be a missionary. And that's the path that he followed later in his life. And, and he had been sent into different regions uh, around Ecuador to reach other tribes in the past and had, had great success. But there was this one, this, this Ocus tribe, who was, was very, very dangerous. And people who had been in the area, whether they be people working for oil companies, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, had been killed by these people of this tribe. But Jim believed that not only did they need Jesus, to know Jesus before they died, he also believed that if they were going to stop the killing, if they were not going to just have a relationship with God improved, but their relationship with one another improved, they needed Jesus. And so he spent years training and planning to move into this region and to reach others in the area. And the day finally came when they flew him in, him and four others, and they landed them on the beach where they started to enact their plan. And for the first couple of days, they had great success in making some initial contact with people and and building some connections to show that they were friendly, that they they meant no harm to anybody. But then on the sixth day, the tribe attacked them and, and killed them all. Six days in, they were all killed. You see, being such a remote area, the way that the sending agency would keep track of them was they would send a plane overhead every day just to check on the camp to see if they could see if there was still activity down there that was happening. And, and, and they started flying the plane over, and they stopped seeing activity. And then they reached a point where they not only saw a lack of activity. They actually saw that the, you know, the camp had been destroyed, and, and news quickly reached home that they had been killed, reached home to Jim's wife, Elizabeth, that her husband had been killed. They have to imagine a time such as this. They ask questions like, what a waste. What a waste to, to give everything in the service of God. To go out there and just give everything in the service of God. To, to go out there and try to serve others. Wouldn't it be better off to just be a terminal? Wouldn't it be better off to just stay home? To, to not try to use my time and my treasures and my talents, but to, to just stay home to just use it for myself, for my own family. You can imagine these are some of the questions that that a widow would naturally ask in such a case such as this. Uh, But that's not what Elizabeth did. And it's not the end of the story. You see, because less than two years later, Elizabeth and other family members of these slain missionaries tried again. They flew in and they landed on the beach where their family had been killed. But this time they were successful. This time they were accepted into the tribe. And this time, many, many people came to know Jesus Christ because of their efforts. And the legacy that Jim left behind has inspired many, many missionaries over the decades to step out and to go and to give and to serve, to, to not just be people who take, but people who dedicate their lives to giving in, in this fashion. And, and it may inspire you in a small way, in some aspect of your life where maybe... Maybe there is something that you've been grasping, grasping after. But perhaps you could change your focus to look what God has given you and ask, how can I worship God and my relationship with Him with this? And how can I use it to the advantage of others? How can I make that, that taker-to-giver transformation in my own life? Maybe it inspires you to ask that question. And one of the other legacies that Jim has left is... is is a journal with with many wonderful writings and sayings one of which actually makes up the background of my computer screen that I see every day one of his most well-known sayings when he says this he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose It's a life that he lived that is not a taker mentality that is somebody who isn't content with just being a non thief That is somebody who is answering the call to go and be a giver. Amen? And all this is in service to Jesus Christ, the original taker-giver, who took our sins unto himself and gave us his righteousness in place. And that in itself would be enough to make him worthy of our praise. That in itself would be enough to be reason for us to serve him and to give to him joyfully. But our God is so good He's so good that He knows, He sees and He knows, and so He cares for our needs, whether they be material or or relational, whether they be emotional or spiritual, He cares for them. Even when we are unfaithful to Him, He is steadfast in His faithfulness to us, and His mercy never fails. His hand is always upon us. Even when we stray, his hand is there, ready to welcome us back. If we have wandered from him for a time, if we are feeling a call back to him, his hand has always been outstretched, ready to receive us. His mercy never fails. Even in those times of challenges and sorrows and loss, we might feel like it's the end of the story. But even then, our good God comes and says and gives us comfort and gives us strength. He he walks alongside us and he says, I'm with you and I'm for you. This is not the end of the story. It is not done. And how do we respond to a good God such as this? We say thank you. We praise him. And we let go of any shred of that taker mindset that may exist within us. And instead, we be givers from the goodness of his blessings. So we do so in word and in deed. And by doing so, we invite others to experience new life with Jesus by living out the goodness of his grace, truth, and love with us. Let's respond to that now and singing as we stand and join the worship team in song.